A Tricky Kid Media original presentation distributed by iHeartRadio. Welcome to Tricky Kid Radio, where the past and the future meet the present for a fun mix of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, hosted by filmmaker and DJ Roy Turner. Thank you for joining us as we welcome special guests from every corner of pop culture and great music across every genre. Now, here's your host, Roy Turner. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tricky Kid Radio. It's actually going to be a daily kind of thing this week because it is Tribeca Week. Tribeca 2021 is in full swing uh, in New York City. We're participating it uh, with the Tribeca at Home uh, portion. Uh, New York is finally getting back into the swing of things. I finally remember my uh, almost decade-long time there from 2006 uh, to 2013. Uh, but we're actually going to be talking about 1987 to 1997 because the first film we're going to be discussing and talking about is a film called All the Streets Are Silent, the convergence of hip-hop and skateboarding from 87 to 97 that just really just basically kind of gave birth uh, to the street style as, as we know it uh, with the opening of the Supreme Store in New York City and, and all that stuff, and then Zoo York, uh, and then, of course, Larry Clark, uh, documenting it all with the film Kids that gave birth to the careers of Rosario Dawson, who was in the film, uh, of course, Chloe Savini, uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, this is a jumping-off point, so I, um, uh, I'm very excited about to be, uh, be, be talking about. Uh, joining us is going to be the, the director of the film, of course, is Jeremy Elkin. This is his directorial debut. Uh, he was, of course, part of No Stranger to Hip Hop and Filmmaking. He was a part of a really great Wu-Tang documentary. Uh, my goodness, it's just on and on and on uh, what we could say about this film. So let's do it up, man. Dana Brown, the producer of the film, is also going to be joining us. Uh, so it's a great, great time. A great way to kick off Tribeca when I was looking at the, uh, the film list. Uh, I went right to this one. Uh, this speaks to me so directly and so deeply. I talk a little bit about this, as you'll hear in the interview with them. Uh, I, when I moved to, to, to New York in 2006, one of the first things I did was actually ride my skateboard. Uh, I think it wasn't to Supreme, but I think it was to like the Puma store. And it was for Cool Herc's 50th birthday. You can see this on our website. And like Chuck D is there. And it's just like, man, I have finally arrived. I'm in New York. It's my first week. Um, I think I had a drink with like uh, one of the, like uh, with Gabby from Luscious Jackson the night before. You know, I'm, you know, it just, it was all happening. And so uh, I got there, you know, later after this. But this is, uh, this is such an important film that, that really frames. It's like a love letter uh, to New York City in that time. So I'm excited to bring that to you. And speaking of the Supreme Store, something I thought was very interesting that I that I saw just today was the most, you know, almost like in a Fugazi in Mackay sort of way, um, 
the band Massive Attack, who obviously I'm a massive, I guess pun intended, uh, fan of. Uh, we're talking about the Supreme Store today because, oddly, uh, the Supreme Store is actually talking about or was announcing a clothing line that features uh, Massive Attack. Of course, you know the famous Beatle from the great album Mezzanine. Not only my favorite Massive Attack record, but one of my favorite records of all time. And that's kind of unlike them. And so they had to kind of issue a bit of a statement saying, hey, look, uh, this was not a co collaboration or even a consultation. We just kind of gave them the nod uh, for as kind of a tribute to uh, to uh, to Nick McKnight. So, uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting in the, the, the timing of it all. But um, anyway, let's do it up, man. Come on. all The movie again is called All the Streets Are Silent. The Convergence of Hip-Hop and Skateboarding, uh, 87 to 97. Um, you're going to see this is the gold mine of stuff in this film. And I believe it's going to be out in theaters. I think they said July 26th. So this will kind of give you a little bit of a, of a sneak preview of what's to come. So we'll be right back uh, with director Jeremy Elkin uh, and producer Dana Brown. And uh, we'll be right back with more Tricky Kid Radio. Anthony Correa and uh, came all the way down from New Jersey just to land his trick. He's gonna land it right now. None of us ever set out to make anything. We were just a group of friends. We were just dingy kids with skateboards. But that little connection of people being together is what exploded and affected the rest of the world. Filming again, Eli. In skateboarding, you had California, and in the East Coast, it was New York. We inhabited the spaces that mainstreamers didn't. They can't do that at the West Coast, you know what I'm saying? New York. It all started from that nightclub, Mars. They was playing all the freshest hip hop. Being a kid from the hood and picking up skateboarding, you just had to be thinking on some other shit. We were like, hey man, we could use the rapping over the skateboarding. This VHS tape resonated so strongly with people. To see skate culture and hip hop culture like really find a synergy just made sense. It's the same expression, but two different presentations. If you're dope, you're dope. It don't matter if you're black, white, spotted, or dotted. It was like a puzzle that all came together. It didn't really matter where you came from. As long as you fit in that puzzle, you were good. Supreme opened, and it was like a place for everyone to go and hang out. They had the rap kids and the skate kids. People wanted to be part of that world. Brooklyn, my frauds. We could never have fathomed that. All these things that were like our little things became mainstream. Look how all of these people have flourished. It's damn near the birth of so many other things. All of that talent that came out of that came from a small, dedicated group of loving individuals. It wouldn't be that fly if it wasn't for that skater kid that you'd probably yell at right now. Hey, 
Hey, we're back here. It's uh, Tribeca week here at uh, on Tricky Kid Radio. Uh, right now, I'm very, very excited to welcome today's guest. Uh, I saw the film last night. It's called All the Streets Are Silent. It's the convergence of hip hop and skateboarding from a very important decade from 87 to 97. I have the director and the co-writer, uh, Jeremy Elkin and Dana Brown joining us. Gentlemen, welcome to Tricky Kid Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so I want to start here. Um, so, of course, Eli uh, narrates it. He was a major figure, major player in all this. And uh, was this this was his footage that you, that came to you guys. Is that right? Yeah, that's how it initially started. Um, Eli made some he's a he's a great graffiti hand style. And he made some titles for a skate video I did in uh, from 2010 to 2013 called Brody's, uh, which was all these skaters from outer boroughs. And he he did his like New York hand style for that. And we stayed in touch. I, I knew about his his insane archive for years. It was sort of like this legendary thing. And he had had footage in like the Wu-Tang doc and in New York projects and Supreme. But it was always these little glimpses or even if it was a full skate video, you just knew that he had he was sitting on a lot more. Yeah. And so the films, you know, the, the process, I guess, started with cataloging, digitizing his archive. Um, so that was like the first year, basically. Um, but the film as it exists now is very much an archive of three people of RB Umali, who moved okay. to New York in 95. So the last like, couple of years is a lot mainly his footage when Eli was sort of, you know, New York was really blowing up. And um and then, yeah, Yuki Watanabe, the club owner, uh, the owner of Mars, he shot 90% of the Mars footage. Okay. And okay. Eli is basically everything else, which is like, you know, huge, probably 25 minutes of the film or something. Well, yeah. I mean, but he's like Forrest Gump. He's in like all these incredibly amazing moments in, in, in history of music and culture. And he was seemed to be there for all of it and, and documenting all of it and might be not the only documentation, at least of the exact moment. I mean, like, it seemed like every shot was like the Zapruder film of, of hip hop. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, right place, right time. I think he, you know, he's always sort of pushed the boundaries of what's possible, I think, and in skating for sure, like in the skate industry and with his, he, you know, he helped start Fat Farm with Russell. And, you know, he was, he's always kind of like, or he was just, Right place, right time, always, right? Incredible. So, um, and, and, you know, Roy, I'll, I'll just throw in also, you know, people forget that, you know, we have phones right now. Everything is filmed. Back then, nobody was filming on the street in New York City. I mean, if you did, you might get clocked. You know what I mean? Right, right, nobody, right. nobody had cameras. No one was carrying them around except for skateboarders. You know, they were the only ones who had these cameras and were shooting tricks and stuff and, and were just getting this vast landscape of New York City, you know, while they were at it. For sure. And I think that that's important, too, because what you're saying is you're saying like, well, OK, then because some people might be listening, might go, well, why why would the skateboarders have the cameras? And in, in your the reason why was because they were trying to record their what they were doing, the, the tricks and things to become better skaters. And they also happened to have be able to document a lot of this stuff. It's, it's incredible. I don't want to give too much away you know, for people who haven't seen the film yet, but I have to mention when you guys were going through the footage, um, Dana, I'm assuming that you were part of this process as well. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, listen, Jeremy is is a skateboard head and a hip hop head, and he he knew what he was looking for. You know, I really, okay. ca- I came in afterwards to sort of help him a little bit to find the story, but okay. but he's the poor yeah. bastard that had to go through, you know, thousands <laughs> of hours of tapes. For sure. It's actually, yeah, it's not as, the biggest challenge is the, is how the information aged over the course of a couple decades or a few decades in some cases. Like the biggest challenge was how some of the tapes had, um, you know, glitched or just been, you know, maybe left in the wrong temperature for 20 years and it just aged the footage or it, you know, you'd have to try and ingest the same tape all day, every day to try and get that little bit, like for Busta Rhymes, it was a bit like that. Like it's when you watch the film and you see the area where Busta appears, that moment where he does his freestyle is very much like patched together to make that because he's if you hit play on the on the um to ingest it you're only getting 10 percent of what you're seeing in the film and then right you know, we're, we're editing like one little scene that maybe is like five or ten seconds it might be comprised of 30 clips all you know against each other because the way that it's all aged right so right. that was like the biggest challenge but most of the tapes like RB's tapes, especially, I mean, I love RB, but like, it's like, and I did the same thing when I used to skate film skating, like tapes are expensive. And so you would just film like the beginning to the end of each try of every trick. So some tapes, you know, there's a hundred tapes where it's like, there's probably like 40 tricks for, you know, a total of like two minutes and everything else is just the skater trying the trick. But when Eli filmed, he was just filming everything which was good and bad because he filmed so much that so much, so many tapes were actually taped over. Like he famously filmed the Jay-Z Big L freestyle at Stretch and Bobbito, taped over it with like a vacation or something, you know, something else. But it was just different back then, whereas RB has like every moment, but it's like these very finite, like little glimpses, right. you know? And Eli was just letting, he was just had the camera on, which was expensive, you know? Like I get why RB didn't do that. Like I didn't do that either. Sure. It's like seven to eight bucks for every like 52 minutes or, you know, like, well, it speaks to what it adds up really quickly, you know, for sure. Well, it speaks to what Dana said earlier too, because, you know, we're so used to having our our phones around us and I'm probably even older than you guys. And so I, back then when you had your little 35 millimeter camera, it had like 12 shots in it. Every shot had to count. You weren't just, you know, oh, let's try that 10 times. And so, but I don't want to give too much away, but I, I, I wanted to speak to what you just said about some of the footage because the part that I popped on the most as a hip hop fan is that when when you hear a Tribe Called Quest's scenario, as many times as you've heard it, you're just waiting for Busta's line because he it's like in a in a sea of, of of killers, it's the killer line. So when you landed on that footage of him doing that, because that's the line from scenario. So um, yeah, 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 apart. Right. You know, so so when you get to see suddenly there's the 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 origins of where that came from when you were going through this footage, did you know that stuff was in there? Because there is some JC stuff in there, too. Did you already know it was there before you went? Uh, Yeah, like the okay. so if you're talking about if you're speaking to just like the bigger name hip hop heads who were in it. The Diamond D, the Busta, and the, uh, what was the other one? The Wu-Tang. The Wu-Tang. Like, yeah. I knew those Thank existed. God. The problem, I knew that, that he had those for sure. The problem was the Wu-Tang tape was like, 
No good. We actually used it off of a DVD. Uh, it's the same DVD that I, I ripped for the Wu-Tang Showtime doc. There's other footage that they used from that same moment uh, in their story, Sasha Jenkins and Peter's uh, film. Um, and we saved, we had a negotiation where we, you know, we got to use some, they got to use some. The okay. others, I knew it existed for sure. Busta's was, this tape was pretty annihilated. Like it wasn't, Right. we had to do a lot of reconstruction, you know, surgery. Kyber, my, my assistant was like, a, you know, he, he was the one sitting there for two, three days piecing it together. Right. Um, but the Jay-Z was a total surprise. We didn't know, we didn't know about that. Cause it wasn't labeled, like the tape was labeled, uh, rap street group i think and yeah. and you know and and roy that one was uh that was from yuki's one of yuki's tapes and he okay. just he sort of gave jeremy a box of tapes it was like i don't really know what's on it but there's a lot of mars stuff and then jeremy called me one day was like holy shit like this it was actually at the end we were finishing up before covid and we found that but it wasn't we didn't find what's in the film we found a muted three maybe not even three seconds a second and a half muted thing of, of jay-z just like mouthing a lyric on stage as a because back in the day you do like tape to tape editing so they would make like you would like lay down the track and then you could pick visual moments to have on the track but when you selected the visual it would drop the audio from that tape right right just be the visual so we had a like highlight reel like it looked like it was made on the camera actually um and Jay-Z was in there and I called Yuki immediately. And I was like, I'm pretty, you know, what, like, where's the Jay-Z tape? And he's like, well, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He didn't even recognize him. Turns out his wife is the one that filmed it, Mayumi. She filmed it. And, but, you know, we didn't have the tape. We had all of his tapes. We didn't have it because I only took the tapes that were labeled. But he okay. had another, like, probably three, four boxes, maybe more of other tapes that were unlabeled. So I took the first box. Luckily, it was in that, and it was the it was the full night of Jay Z. So there yeah. could be other gems and diamonds in these other boxes. We went we went through every, at the end. Yeah, we, okay. I was just like, I I mean, but listen, Roy. Like, yeah, maybe maybe one of these guys finds a box they forgot to give us, and we could do a sequel to this in a couple. That's of years, what, that's what I was going to suggest. <laughs> Well, I guess the reason why it's important for our listeners to understand is that when you're doing this, is it how did you know you had a film here? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, like, sure, there could be some 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 gems here, but you would have had to have had some some information in order to pursue this kind of undertaking. Ooh, you, you want uh, me to try to handle that one, Jeremy? You want to try to? I mean, I, I can't. It's, yeah, I mean, so just for backstory, like Dana came on like maybe a year and some change into it. Um, I had started down the rabbit hole a bit, knowing that I guess it started with a question. You know, it's like, how did the mixtape video happen? And I was friends with Eli, so I was always just curious, you know. And um, it started really just—it didn't really start as a film. It started as me being curious. And wanting to make like a short film or a you know 20 to 30 minute film on how mixtape occurred but then you know in hearing from eli that like you know he didn't really know the wu-tang they were just there he didn't you know he knew that but then he was like close friends with this person or was like really tight with bobito or you know there was some of it there but it felt like a, i mean we had no I guess, keep in mind, this is an independent film. There's no budget. There's no investor or sponsor. It was totally independent. So, you know, we had a, a, a serious amount of limitations making it. When you see the film, I mean, it's just me and Dana in our apartment, like making it. Like there's no, 
you know, it's not like some huge production. I mean, right, sure. we're filming these guys on the street, no permits, just taking tickets from cops because like we, you know, we're not gonna get like a location permit. It was just like, yeah, it was, it was just different. So when it comes to like how the film started, like it was just like, you know, get one interview, maybe get another one, another one, another one. I mean, I knew a lot of the guys already and I knew what Eli had, but I didn't, I didn't know like what the story would be. And then when Dana came along, uh, uh, and we had worked together for years before, but when he came on this project, um, it was really clear that like with his storytelling ability and my like insanity with footage, I think we had, we could probably like put something together, yeah. but we didn't really, I mean, yeah, like you said, like we didn't have the Jay-Z, we didn't know it existed. We didn't know, even honestly, when we did Eli's narration, which was like an eight hour sit down interview, like I didn't know about Yuki at all. Like I knew about Mars, but I didn't know about Yuki. And then he was like, you should hit up Yuki. I just thought he was in Japan or Europe or Australia. Who knows where this guy is? He's in Tribeca, you know, it's like, each interview led to another one and each footage led to more footage. It just, you know. It was sure. like, yeah, Roy, it was like a treasure hunt. And every time there was a new interview, it almost took us farther back in time. And we kept sort of going, oh, well, this was this but this actually started here and then we would get to that and interview someone and it would take us a couple years earlier and it all sort of led back to 1987 and and 98 i guess um also the 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 mars you know the founding of mars and this hip-hop party that eli happened you know yuki met him on the street and he started promoting this hip-hop party and it was at a time where you know clubs weren't playing hip-hop they thought it was too dangerous and they didn't want that crowd and Eli was like, no, 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 kids are kids are listening to hip hop. That's all my friends are listening to. And so it was just this this, you know, it was like almost like a, a, a treasure map without the map, you know, that was kept sure. leading us to, to more and more things. And, you know, at the end, it, it, it was sort of a nice decade. You know, it was perfect, perfectly timed. Right. Uh, but that was sort of the that was sort of it. One one interview would lead us back in time into another person. And it was just this this chain reaction. What about your own personal experiences? Did you guys live through any of this? Were you in New York at the time and a part of this? Yeah, you want to start? Do you want me to tell you? Well, I'm I'm a generation older than Jeremy, so I'm I'm allowed to speak about this uh, before him. Uh, you know, it's funny. It's what drew me into this. I am I am not a skateboarder. Uh, I'm a big music fan, but I wouldn't say I'm a, a hip hop head at all. But I remember, you know, I remember hip hop in the 80s i remember you know and i kept saying this this to jeremy i was like i was like this is a big moment that de la soul record when that came out is one of the biggest moments in hip hop because it was it was the samples were very familiar um especially to a white audience women started listening to hip hop because you could dance to it that de la soul record i think is the beginning of something and then you know, I remember very clearly in 1991, in the fall of 1991, I went to go see the Pixies play in New York City. And a week later, I went to see Tribe Called Quest play. And it was Busta was there and he was on stage. It was the exact same crowd. And I was like, this is I was like, this is a really big moment. It was like that that album, you know, Tribe's second album, The Low End Theory, was just like Whole, wow, you know that was just another giant moment right um in hip-hop and i was like something's going on here something's going on here and I, and I lived around the corner from supreme in 94 when it opened and 
I had no idea what this place was. I went in there once in the summer of 94 to buy a pair of shorts because I was going to Lollapalooza and I had no shit. Like, you know what I mean? It was like my relationship to this. It, to me, it was always like, this is like a hidden gem of a New York culture story. Maybe one of the last great ones, you know what I mean? To, to sort sure. of emerge in the cauldron of, of New York culture. And that's what attracted me to it. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, I know nothing about skateboarding. Like that is, you know, with, with, without Jeremy on this, I would have just been completely lost. But it really was this vast New York culture story to me. Jeremy, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I guess I'm from Montreal, uh, but my, my mom's side of the family is from the Bronx and from Upper West and, you know, city, Harlem. And um, so I was always coming down here uh, as a little kid and I was a skater in Montreal. My brother who's much, much older than me, but he's a, he's a DJ and a skater, a designer. And so, you know, he would come down here. He's actually living here around 9-11, but even, I mean, in the nineties, I was going to Supreme. I was just like 13, you know, or whatever. And uh, my, my sister's friend, Willow Prone is actually in the movie He's the one who brought me to Supreme. I don't think it was the first time I was there, but it was the first time I went where like, he knew all the guys, he knew corporate and everyone working there. And I got a, an alien workshop board. And I was like, I must've been like, what, 12 or something? I don't know. But it was one of the first times where that was like an eye-opening moment. Cause I was going to, I met him at Rockus Records where he was a creative director. We right. walked over to Supreme, which was like fourth and Broadway, it was Rockus. Sure. And then we walked down to Supreme and it just a total like, I told him recently when I saw him, but I was like, is that, that day is like forever in my mind, like crossing through the two gas stations, going yeah. to Supreme. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then fast forward, like I made, I made skate videos for, from 2000 to 2014 um, in my free time and, you know, independent skate videos and the New York ones all had hip hop soundtracks mixed on vinyl. Sure. So I was already like, I mean, yeah, like when you film skateboarding every day for like over a decade, you kind of like, you know, you wind up meeting a lot of these types of people, either sure. artists or photographers, music, you know, hip hop artists, et cetera. Right. So, um, yeah, it was just a natural. It was, it was, this is like totally familiar. Like, right. Okay. So yeah, I, yeah, that because I wanted to know if there was a landmark moment that you had your own agenda of of presenting. You know, I mean, you had the source material and obviously there's this, it's there in the title, it's the convergence of hip hop and skateboarding. But, uh, you know, I think it was important what Dana just said, there's footage of that De La release on Halloween of that year in the film. For you personally, was there a landmark moment that you really wanted to be able to present in terms of a, of, of a timeline of, of this whole movement? I mean, I just love how like, to me, the craziest part is like Supreme opens and like a week or two later, Nas albums release, right? Or Eli's up at the Wu-Tang, next day he's filming, it's on the same tape. I tried to cut it so you could really see, but like, it's literally, I, we should have actually done you should have actually just seen it, like saw that, like imagine you could see the tape playing and it just goes cuts from the Wu-Tang into uh, the skater at the Brooklyn Banks being like, do you hear that new Wu-Tang freestyle, you know? Cause it's literally like the net, you know, it's, if you just watch the tape, that's how it plays, you know? I love that line too, whenever he, he goes, did you hear it? And he goes, oh yeah, man, I got video of it. I got on video, yeah. And the guy is kind of like, of course you did. <laughs> I love no, no, that. He's like, you got it on video. He was like, he's a little, I think he was like a little confused. That's Jamie's yeah. story, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, right. like, 
yeah, like moments like that to me are, um, I don't know. I mean, the, the main, the, the, I guess the thrill of making the film is to finally like show people where some of the stuff came from, because you see people walking down the street dripping in North Face Supreme with like a van, vans on and whatever. And they're just like, they don't skate. They don't maybe probably don't listen to hip hop. They probably don't even like, I don't know, maybe that maybe they're into New York history. Maybe they're not, but it's cool to put it all in one place and, and be able to show sure. people that, you know? While we take a short break, let me assure you this isn't an ad you can afford to skip. Simply be entranced by my voice so you can hear from these great sponsors. Hey guys, while we take a break, I wanted to tell you something about my favorite venue in Texas uh, and maybe the world over. Uh, if you have never been to the Texan Theater in Greenville, which is... Uh, it's you know a little ways north uh, on your way to Oklahoma. Uh, it's a, I guess it's about an hour and a half maybe north of, of Dallas. Uh, it is the greatest venue in the world. The proprietor, owner, and just all around badass Barbara Haran p puts on one of the most unique experiences you will ever have in your life. Uh, she approaches things from a very different business model that I think the whole world should embrace and we would all would be uh, better for it. It's just this amazing uh, experience where you get to see uh, one of your favorite artists up close in a gorgeous venue and dinner is included, uh, unlimited drinks are included. Um, you know, she treats her staff so well. They're not getting the, whatever, the $2 an hour and relying on tips things. She makes, she takes good care of them. N literally none of them have had to suffer uh, throughout the pandemic, thankfully. Uh, Barb's just a great gal, a great person, uh, very creative, and just uh, just one of my favorite people. And so if you're ever in Greenville or even near, anywhere near Dallas, make a point to visit the Texan Theater in, in, uh, in Greenville. And as you know, we're working on our uh, uh, King's X film project. You know, as you know, I'm a filmmaker myself. And so we'll be, should be talking about that maybe in the context of Tribeca soon. Uh, but we will be having the film along with a live performance uh, with King's X there at the Texas Theater uh, as soon as we can get this sucker done. So, so once again, Texan Theater in Greenville, check it out. Tricky Kid Radio is distributed by iHeartRadio and is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the Google Play Store. Subscribe for free on the iHeartRadio app or on your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to Tricky Kid TV on YouTube.com for a stunning visual look at all the fun we have here, plus exclusive content, short films, and more. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle, at TrickyKid2, Type Tricky Kid Radio Podcast on Facebook and DJ Tricky Kid on Instagram. Speaking of which, subscribe now to Roy Turner's alter ego DJ Tricky Kid's amazing Twitch channel at twitch.tv for retro gaming, exclusive DJ sets, as well as DJ instruction and live streaming of Tricky Kid Radio, where you, the audience, can participate and interact with our guests. Don't miss a single stream, so you can be up to date on the latest on all things Tricky Kid. Subscribe now at twitch.tv slash DJ Tricky Kid. Oh, what's up? This is the infamous serial wax killer Beastie Boys DJ Assassin Mix Master Mike, and you're tuned into my man DJ Tricky Kid. Don't be a clown. Don't sleep. Check it out, y'all. 
a lot of our listeners uh, are also uh, filmmakers, so we like to try to do a little bit of, of that for them, too. You mentioned about not having much of a budget, but man, my gosh, the new footage looks gorgeous. Can And, and you're doing street interviews and the audio is perfect. Can you let us in on a little bit of what you shot it with and what did you do with audio? Sure. So, I mean, it was shot on red. Um, I thought, and, I thought so. uh, yeah, for audio, I mean, I, I worked at Entertainment Tonight for a few years and doing a lot of those like junket interviews that are really loud. And I think I just learned how to do, um, I learned from some of the great sound technicians there, uh, little tricks and just the right equipment and the right, you know, just settings, et cetera. So what what um, equipment were you using there on the street? Um, it was a mix of, they were called DPA logs um, that I, you know, we, we hit a lot of the time. Um, uh, and then the, it's, it's a boom. I mean, 99% of the interviews are boom. Okay. Um, and it's a, uh, it's called an MKH. Uh, I'm not good at the tech stuff. Uh, oh, MKH something, M MKH 180 or something, 175 okay. or something. Yeah. That's uh, a Sennheiser. It's maybe like $1,200 mic. Yeah. Okay. But it's the, it's the wind. There's like a wind scrim and a very specific cable Mogami XLR. I mean, it's all, you know, it's okay. a certain type of, of, you know, of system. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean the the yeah the beauty of that boom is um, is that it really I mean the love is that the ones that we use are really amazing because it could be a bus stop like Peter BC's interviews literally at, on at a bus stop and the bus is there but you're not even you're only getting his voice. That's what that I was, was amazed about. Yeah. Yeah, that was really I've nice. done outdoor interviews and I've tried to do like the DD with a lav mic and go directly into the camera and bullshit. You know, you, you really have to have that that boom or if you really want to cut that stuff out. So I've always have tried to promote the idea of the, of, of the boom being better. Um, you know, I'll tell you this. One thing that, that, you know, I wanted people to see that I thought was great was that uh, when, when I had already had the mixtape, when Kids the Movie came out, I actually was working at a Blockbuster video in, in Texas, and I would try to recommend it to everybody, and people would be returning it going, what did you, what did you recommend to me? <laughs> and, uh, and But that stuff resonated so strongly, especially for people that were outside of New York, because it just seemed like just a completely, you know, a different world there. Talk to me about how the importance of 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 because I, I think the film does a great job of showing how much that resonated with people, not just with that were part of it, but were outside of it. Walk me through that, Dana. Let's start with you. I well, you know, it's funny that you you bring that up because there I think there is a Leo Fitzpatrick line in the film uh, where you know, and Leo of course was one of the stars of Kids. And he said, you know, I had people coming up to me all the time, like that movie is the reason I came to New York City. And, and he would say, you know, it was a cautionary tale. Right. Um, but but, but I, I don't think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're one, of, um, uh, one of the people in the film, uh, Bill Strobeck, who's a, a big skate filmmaker and a, a friend of Jeremy's, I think grew up somewhere in upstate New York, right? Jeremy in Syracuse. And I think that and, and, you know, that kids movie was the thing that that one of the things that drew him to New York, like it was it, it you know, it was a time and a place in New York. And that film, you know, however, you know, it was it was fiction, you know, it was a fictionalized version of a real scene. But boy, did it have drawing power. 
uh, to this city. It just felt like this vibrant scene. And like, listen, when you're a kid, like you just want freedom and you just want to be free and you want to be a kid and you want to do whatever you want. You don't want rules and you just what and that's what that movie was selling. And I think it was. Yeah, I, I think it can't be sort of understated the impact that that film had on sort of bringing a new new generation to New York who wanted to be part of that thing, you know, totally. And the convergence of hip hop and skateboarding. What do they have in common? They represent freedom. And, and the expression and the ability to be able to do so, you know? Um, you know, and, and I think everybody wants that moment. I, I had something very you, you know, special happen to me. I moved to New York in 06. And within the first week I went to a, it wasn't Supreme, but I went to think like the Puma store or something off of Broadway. And it was like Cool Herc's like 50th birthday. And, you know, Chuck D is there. I skate, I rode my, my board to the store. You know, I'm like, I've been in here for a week and this is happening. Uh, it, it, you know, and Harold had just passed away a couple of months before I got to town. And it was, res, that was resonating um talk to me about that about the people that you that, that you were speaking to about the impact that not just the movie but these individual people had on their own community yeah harold was a big deal man i mean even you know you just always hear stories and even you know i i used to when i grew up in montreal you know the new york guys would come through everyone would have a Harold story like you got it you know it's just I think he touched a lot of people um he uh I I actually didn't know him at all I knew a, a lot of my friends were really really close with him and even a friend of, close friend of mine lived with him for a long time but uh yeah he I think he, he it was a big deal when when he passed and uh yeah. I think uh you know it was really felt probably harder than others because it was just he was he just tried to be friends with I I don't know if he was friends with everyone or not, but he tried as hard as he could to make sure and and remember and 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 be present with every single person he met. You know, I, and, and you know, Roy, I you know, walking around New York City now, you will see references to Harold Hunter everywhere you go. Yeah. I was walking on Bleecker Street the other day, and there was just a collage of of graffiti and posters and stuff, and there was a big one of Harold Hunter. Like he just became this sort of iconic figure from that scene. Um, and, you know, in many ways, because of his early passing, he sort of became a martyr to that scene. You know, right. he was he was that scene's Biggie or Kurt Cobain or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but also, you know, he was he was you know, this was really important for me to get across in the story. And, and I think it does. You know, the 80s were were like race in New York City was was horrible during the 80s and there were just a, so many incidents and like black and white were not mixing and the music wasn't mixing and and you know skateboarding was a white thing and hip-hop was a black thing and Harold's this sort of central figure to this sort of like coming together of you know he was a kid who grew up on uh, I think Avenue C or Avenue D in the projects and you know, and he was heading a little farther west, I think, than those other kids were. And then he picked up a skateboard. Like he was a pivotal character and and human being, and and the human face of this other thing that wasn't mixing with this other thing. And I I really think he's sort of like an important figure in this sort of racial healing in in New York City. And I thought that that's what was so important. And thank you. That was exactly what I was 
Uh, you know, I, I love hearing that from you and, and that articulation of that, because to me, that that was the message that I got from from the film. Uh, but I'm also somebody that's so dialed into it that I, I love that it could, you know, be something that would transcend that, you know, uh, a couple of questions that we have from people that were that uh, previously from online that were wanting to wanting to know a few things. Uh, when I forget who it is, but they they mentioned about how some of the skaters that, that Supreme had their own skate team, and I guess that wasn't clear. I guess to, to some people that were you know that were that might be thinking about that is what does that mean? Like if you're if you're watching the film and he says that, what does Supreme having their own skate team and these guys being actual pro skaters? What does that mean? How does that happen? I mean, it's all optics. I don't, they don't, they never, you know, if you look at like a shoe company, for instance, like an Adidas or a Nike Converse, um, they'll have like a page on their website with like sponsored skaters with like age and birthplace and like, what are they into? Favorite trick, whatever. Supreme is too cool for any of that. I mean, they're not, they don't really like, there's never really been like an official Supreme like skater who skates for them. Uh, it's very like mysterious, still to still the same okay. to this day. It hasn't changed. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's either you're down with that crew or you're not. It's not like a, the word team, I think is like, it, they're not like going and competing in contests. If that's what you're okay. at. like, yeah. it's like, they're just like hanging out at someone's apartment, maybe. <laughs> but are they getting, um, but is Supreme paying them or were they paying them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Supreme is basically like the Vatican. You know, it's just so it's it's it's, it's otherworldly and totally mysterious. Totally. And when a new skater comes in, the you know the smoke uh, wafts from the ceiling, right? Uh, you as the producer, uh, Dana, uh, talk to me about landing Rosario Dawson for the film because she has a major contribution here. It was actually I, the easiest. Yeah. That was the yeah. easiest one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let, always and, and I, yeah, I'm going to let Jeremy take that one. I mean, it, this was this was this was and yes, it's like the biggest, maybe one of the biggest gets we had, but it actually came pretty naturally. Rosario is really, really tight with Eli and they go way back. So and, and Rosario, I think, was always really inspired by Eli and what he was doing and looked up to him. And he was kind of like this figure in the scene to them. So she, you know, she's younger. So um, I think her and her friends really looked up to to Eli sort of like as this connector, uh, not only with Supreme and New York and all that, but I think also on the hip hop side, the club side design, you know, and, and so many different parts of life that I don't think they were exposed to growing up in, in Alphabet City. So I think, uh, yeah, Eli, they stayed in touch and they're still, I mean, we did Rosario's interview was in Eli's apartment in LA. So it was, uh, wow. And, and, yeah. and I, I can't, you know, her her being in the film and her her support and continued support of the film is a really, really big deal and means a lot to us. And it's really it was really important to this to this project. Outstanding. Uh, last question for now. Um, kind of a two parter here. One. OK, so why didn't if Eli was filming all this stuff? Like, how come he didn't make the film himself? How come how did it get passed on to you guys? And why now? Yeah, uh, why now? Because uh, I had just started an independent production label and had some spare time. This was like five years ago, whatever. Um, but uh, Eli, not telling the story, I mean, I think he always, he always says to me, like, you know, it's, it's so great that you guys did it because he, he thinks it's just better if an outsider tells it. He doesn't want it. It's too close. He can't, he can't see it, you know? 
Um, so I think there's that. Um, also, he, you know, he, I don't think he's going to sit there and like digitize like 6,000 tapes. You know, I, I don't think he's, well, he's, it's, gonna it's, wanna, he's it's, not going to do all that. It's also you. I mean, like Jeremy said, I think you need, it's hard to tell your own story and, and to get sort of a fresh set of eyes. And it is, it's, it is, you know, anthropology essentially. And you, sure. you sort of need someone else to do it. And on top of that, it's like, you know, Eli's also a filmmaker and has made films before and making a film or a documentary, it's so hard and it's so time consuming. Yes, And I it's know. just, it's a brutal, it's a really brutal experience. I mean, now we can sit back and, and smile and talk about it, but this was really difficult, you know, and, and Jeremy's an incredible filmmaker and just his, his patience and his eye for detail and, and just what he was able to, to, to do here and the story he was able to tell. It's a lot of work and, yes. and not, not, I'm not saying Eli's lazy and, and wouldn't have right. been able to do it. I think it would have obviously been a different film, but I think in a weird way, it was kind of a relief to let somebody else tell his story. For sure. Well, as someone who is like on th year three of my own production of a documentary currently, I can empathize. And I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah I'm so sorry, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, I'm sure we could probably could commiserate sometime down, down the road here. Uh, the film is called All the Streets Are, uh, Are Silent, The Convergence of Hip Hop and Skateboarding from 1987 to 1997. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Uh, when can people at large see this film? I, I was wait, I was waiting for the shameless plug opportunity. Here it comes, uh, Jeremy. We're, we are we will be in theaters nationwide uh, in North America and Canada and a couple territories overseas on July twenty third. Okay. Uh, we're we're still awaiting uh, and a, a final list of where it will be, but it's going to be in a substantial amount of cities in North America, which is great. Uh, and then we head to digital platforms. What was Jeremy September seventh, I believe. Yeah, that's worldwide September 7th. September yeah. 7th will be on uh, on all the sort of video on demand platforms, iTunes, Amazon and all that. Fantastic. Who's handling the theatrical distribution? We uh, we have a company called Greenwich Entertainment okay. um, and Greenwich has been around for a few years. Uh, an excellent, excellent company. They handle a lot of documentaries. Uh, they 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 uh, distributed Free Solo a few years ago and had quite a bit of, of theatrical success with that. And so we were thrilled and really honored that they took this film on. Fantastic. Once again, Jeremy Elkin, Dana Brown see this film uh again i absolutely loved it uh i again grew up with this stuff i i was it was when the list came for the films i was i went right to this one so uh well done guys outstanding job and i look forward to uh, the rest of the world can see it at large yeah. roy thank you so much and good luck with your yeah. film thank, <laughs> thank you <laughs> i appreciate it maybe we'll be talking about that again soon sometime yeah. right and i right. hope we can talk again sometime soon guys Sure. Thanks, man. Take care. Cheers, you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Jeremy Elkin and Dana Brown. What a great film. Great guys. Uh, just so, you know, dedicated to this. And they're the right people to make it. I mean, Jeremy is somebody that's, that's these are these are New Yorkers that were, you know, there during it and, and a part of it and had the vision for it. And to be able to take Eli's just gold mine of source material and turn it into this into actual gold um 
is just amazing. So I'm excited for you guys to see the film when it comes out. Again, it's on July 26th. It'll be in theaters. And you heard a lot of the information that was uh, there in the interview. We'll have links up on our website, which, of course, is tricky-kid.com. And, uh, and we'll, of course, you can find us, of course, on Twitter uh, on, under Tricky Kid, the number two. Facebook under Tricky Kid Radio. I'm on Instagram under DJ Tricky Kid. Uh, across the board, man. So, anyway, more coming. We're, we just saw the Bourdain, Andy Bourdain film um, from Morgan Neville called Roadrunner. Uh, Buddy Guy uh, film. Uh, there's one on Rick James. Uh, lots and lots of good stuff. Larry Flint for president. Just saw that one. So, stick around uh, this week. We got a lot more coming. And we'll see you. And we'll talk to you uh, here. And uh, hey, how about tomorrow? <laughs> Cheers. Next week on Tricky Kid Radio. This has been a presentation of Tricky Kid Media Originals, distributed by iHeartRadio, created and directed by Roy Turner, edited and mastered by Marcus Miller, theme music by the Buckcats, original score by Jocelyn Hunt, artwork by Antora Sandy, marketing and PR by Francesca Miles. Tricky Kid Radio is hosted by Roy Turner with introductions by me, Dana French. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next week.